This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 25th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Naomi Klein has attempted to expose what she sees as the ruthless nature of free market capitalism in her book, The Shock Doctrine. Cato Institute senior fellow Johan Norberg has attempted to catalog the problems with Klein's book in a Cato briefing paper, The Klein Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Polemics. Calling Klein's analysis hopelessly flawed at virtually every level, Norberg says less politically free regimes tend to resist market liberalization, while those states with greater political freedom tend to pursue economic freedom as well. Naomi Klein's thesis is fairly simple. It's the, she claims that free markets and free trade is, uh, is widely unpopular around the world. So it'll be impossible almost to get them accepted on a, in a democratic way. So she claims that uh, free marketeers, libertarians, classical liberals constantly try to uh, fool the voters by using shocks, using disasters. could be a national uh, catastrophe like a military coup, a dictatorship, could be a natural disaster, a hurricane, something like that. And when people are shocked, when they can't resist, when they don't know uh, what to do next, they're fighting for their survival, then vicious free market economists and politicians, they use those brief moments to liberalize prices, liberalize trade, and so on. And um, and that's also something that she claims leads to more poverty and misery around the world once those reforms have been implemented. Does she make any claims about uh, the introduction of uh, more capitalism in China and India, right, raising you know hundreds of millions of people out of poverty? The strange thing with this book, it's 500 pages long and it has this pretty strong claim that liberalization constantly results in in tragedy, is that she never looks at the long term. She never looks at consequences, data, statistics, anything like that. She's got 50 pages of footnotes, but you wouldn't find any sort of empirical basis for, for her claims there. She says things in vaguely like... Um, in countries that liberalize, we see a, a new permanent underclass. In China, after liberalization, we see a strong growth of inequality. But she never mentions that that inequality is the result of wages increasing something like sevenfold in the urban areas and only fivefold in the rural areas. So, no, she never really engages the facts that we have, that we've seen the fastest poverty reduction around the world in the precise moments that she claims to be savage capitalist in in our world. And she never engages in the, um, the for her, problematic uh, uh, fact that it has been the countries that have liberalized the most, that have integrated the most into the global economy, that have seen the fastest growth rates and the most poverty reduction. Now, the particular bad guy of, of her book, if, if, there, if you can think of it that way, is Milton Friedman, you know, the, the great free market economist. So what does she say, and she attributes to Friedman this idea that free marketeers must lie in wait for a disaster to occur and to build up a steady stock of ideas for implementation during these times of crisis, which, you know, on its face is not necessarily untrue, but it's also not necessarily very uh, controversial. Right. She engages here in a wild and almost aggressive distortion of Milton Friedman's ideas, and she does that 
in two ways, by distorting some of his quotes and second, by uh, actually pretending that uh, a lot of bad things that are happening around the world, that a lot of policies were really his policies, uh, could be corporate welfare schemes, could be neoconservative military invasions around the world. She pretends that that's something that Milton Friedman agrees with. She devotes a lot of attention to one quote from Milton Friedman, which is really the the shock doctrine, according to her. And it's a couple of words from the new introduction to Capitalism and Freedom in 1982, where he says that it takes often a crisis, uh, real or perceived, to get real change in a in a country. And she claims that this means that he wanted crisis, he wanted catastrophes and tragedies. Um, she even, in the short film that accompanies this book, she shows those words, the, that quote, above pictures, images of prisoners being tortured to pretend that that's the kind of crisis that he longed for. Or the kind of change that he longed for. Quite right. And in the, um, in the book, she goes on to look at military coups, at uh, natural disasters, horrible human catastrophes, and, uh, and how then she thought that politicians afterwards have tried to liberalize the economy to get it going and then pretend that that's what Milton Friedman wanted. He wanted those crises. If you look at the context of the quote, it's really non-controversial. What Milton Friedman says is that, look, it's 1982. The communist planned economies are failing. It produces human misery. We can see that the welfare state in Western Europe and in the US is producing high unemployment and high inflation rates. And when this happens, when we see this kind of crisis, people begin to change their minds. They're beginning to look for alternatives. In other words, bad ideas result in bad consequences, and then people want to change. That was what Milton Friedman talked about in this quote. And it's obvious for Naomi Klein, if she ever read uh, this preface, this introduction, that this is what Milton Friedman was talking about. and I mean, that's nothing that she would disagree with, really. It sounded that she takes it completely out of context and pretends that it's something completely different. One example I think of, because I haven't read the book and I was wondering about your thoughts on it, is after the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall and the rise of Estonia as, as a as a sort of an economic miracle after the the uh, fall of communism. Is there any discussion of how countries dealt with, you know, a, a, a it was in a sense a crisis that, that communism had uh, had collapsed, that, that, you know, the Kremlin stood down and allowed solidarity to have their political victory, and, you know, these countries, uh, some of them, stepped in with with a, a bunch of free market solutions to I mean does, is, does she even address the Estonian uh, economic miracle no she doesn't and it's it's very odd since that's one of the changes that have where all the people who were involved talked about Milton Friedman's influence on this and, process and radical economic change after the end of, of communism yes and it was supported again and again in the elections so obviously Naomi Klein doesn't talk about it because it doesn't support oh, because her it thesis. was popular because it, it was popular it was and we've seen 
in many of the places where we've seen the most rapid economic liberalization, uh, and it has been supported again and again at the polls in Estonia, in on Iceland, in Ireland, in Australia, in the US during the 1980s and so on. She never talks about it. She never mentions it. So to be able to sort of somehow support her very broad claim about how, how unpopular free markets are, she has to look at the worst cases, the places where dictatorships have liberalized economies. And I mean, to be fair to her, that's correct. Uh, since, the 1980, since 1980, if we look at the economic freedom of the world statistics, almost all countries around the world have liberalized their economies to some extent. Uh, I think only four countries haven't. So it means that, yes, some brutal dictatorships have also liberalized their economies, just as a lot of peaceful, nice, <laughs> decent democracies have. And what she does is to look only at a few of those dictatorships and then say, look, this is the only way for the free marketeers to get their policies accepted. Like in China, for example, with having this brutal one-party state and, and torturing the opponents. Well, then you can liberalize. So, so that's why she talks about that. And, but she also has to distort those examples. For example, in China, when she, uh, she claims that the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989 was the, the shock that made economic shock therapy possible in China. She claimed that the protesters were really protesting against Friedmanite economic reforms, which is quite strange because if they did, you would expect them to, in their all of their statements that she, they wrote, that some time, at least once, they would mention that they were discontent with economic reforms. Well, they didn't. But worse, worse than that, a worse distortion is the claim that economic reform was the result of the massacre. When people were in shock, Deng Xiaoping and the other could, could really liberalize the economy. What really happened in China was the opposite. During three years after the Tiananmen Square massacre, those three years didn't see any sort of liberalization. And those were the only three years during the last 30 years when we haven't seen economic liberalization. Because the massacre strengthened the traditionalists in the Communist Party, those who said that, no, we can't liberalize anymore because you see the kind of forces that we've opened up to. And even Deng Xiaoping was out in the cold. And the general secretary, Zhu, who supported the protesters and the economic reforms, he was put in house arrest until his death. So, so Naomi Klein is, once again, she has to fake and distort the events, has to fake the chronology, change the chronology by three years to make her thesis more credible. Cato Institute senior fellow Johan Norberg is author of the recent Cato briefing paper, The Klein Doctrine. You can read it at cato.org. 